Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Thank you for tuning in. So, does anyone have a billion pounds or so down the back of the sofa? I only ask because Parliament and Big Ben both need fixing and the UK's a bit broke at the moment. Really helpful if you could spare a few bob for that. It seems almost fitting that the acrimony and money are swirling around Big Ben far from being an easy construction project, an exemplar of British Victorian technology and triumphalism. The story around Big Ben is one of disaster, failure, bitterness, fraud and lawyers. It is also a marvel of technology, risk and innovation. Just the sort of things we like on this podcast. This is supposed to be a mini-sode, but I'm afraid I've come dangerously close to going down the rabbit hole on this topic. There's just so much more I could cover here, to be honest. Before we plunge in, I'd like to give a shout-out to Josh in LA. He has left me a lovely review on the US iTunes. Thanks, Josh. Much appreciated. Hope you enjoy this episode. Life in the world of the Age of Victoria podcast is actually seriously busy. I've been tweeting up a storm recently. I've got scripts ready for episodes 005 and 006. I'm doing research on Napoleonic medicine and surgery for you. I'm really looking forward to that episode. And to top it all off, I went to see Professor Kate Williams at the Theatre Royal in Winchester last night to hear her give a lecture on Queen Victoria. Great stuff. If you have a chance to catch one of her lectures please do, because she is incredibly knowledgeable on her subject, funny and a great presenter. I was even lucky enough to get her to sign a copy of her book, Becoming Queen. Don't forget to tweet or email or leave a message on Facebook. More transcripts should be going up on the website soon. And if you really like it, well, leave a review on iTunes or even consider making a donation via the website. Onwards, Watson. Why am I saying Big Ben at all? Yes, we could start a discussion with the pedantry of the name of the bell versus the name of the tower. This isn't a pub quiz night, though. Let's get into the heart of the matter. Let's wind the clock back to the beginning and learn about the clock, the tower, the bell, the money, the lawyers and the engineering genius. We need to step back to 16th of October, 1834. It was an incredible year in history, a truly Civilization changing movement was underway. Charles Babbage was deep in the design of computers, moving from his difference engine to the formation of the idea of the analytic engine. I'm not going to sidetrack into this area or the much needed discussion of Charles Babbage, Ada Lovelace, and computers. I'm just not now. But this was one of the building blocks of the modern world quietly taking shape. 1834 was the year that South Australia was established as a colony. Sir Robert Peel published the Tamworth Manifesto, the basis of the modern Conservative Party. The Hanson Cab was patented. The first steam-powered man of war, HMS Tartarus, was launched. Harrods was started as a grocer's. The word scientist was first used in the modern sense. 
and William Morris was born. But crucially for us today, there was a great fire in the Palace of Westminster. From a historic perspective, it was tragic. The ancient palace was pretty much destroyed due to the careless disposal of some tally sticks. They were being destroyed as they were finally banned from use by the Exchequer, long after they should have been replaced with paper records. Dickens was caustically mocking about their continued use as records, describing it as, quote, obstinate adherence to obstinate custom. He also mocked the bureaucratic steps needed to implement the change from wood to paper. He said, all the red tape in the country grew redder at the mere mention of this bold and original conception, end quote. This is wholly in keeping with the trend in British history to cling on to obsolete or even dangerous methods, activities and customs for far too long and to foot-drag the means of modernisation or replacement. Caroline Shenton of the Parliamentary Archives at Westminster, an author of The Day Parliament Burned Down, described the dramatic events at Westminster on the 16th of October, 1834. Quote, By the end of the late Georgian period, the buildings of the Palace of Westminster had become an accident waiting to happen. The rambling complex of medieval and early modern apartments making up the Houses of Parliament, which, over the centuries, architects including Wren, Watt and Soane had attempted to improve and expand, was by then largely unfit for purpose. Complaints from MPs about the state of their accommodation had been rumbling on since the 1790s and reached a peak when they found themselves packed into the hot, airless and cramped commons chamber during the passage of the Great Reform Bill. Unable to agree on a solution for new accommodation, in the end, the decision was made for them. The long-overdue catastrophe finally occurred on the 16th of October, 1834. Throughout the day, a chimney fire had smouldered under the floor of the House of Lords chamber, caused by the unsupervised and ill-advised burning of two large cartloads of wooden tally sticks, a form of medieval tax receipt created by the Exchequer, a government office based at Westminster, in the heating furnaces below. Warning signs were persistently ignored by the senile housekeeper and the careless clerk of works, leading the Prime Minister later to declare the disaster one of the greatest instances of stupidity upon record. End quote. Similar foot-dragging can be seen in the way the modern British railway system operates and its persistent failure to modernise and electrify. Tragically, fire safety is too often seen as a burden or an afterthought. It was a miracle that no one actually died in the enormous blaze. Awe-struck crowds gathered, and the ancestors of the fire brigade, the London Fire Engine Establishment, together with cabinet ministers, local parish firefighters and others, valiantly battled the inferno. If you want an idea of the sheer scale of the fire and the impact, well, Turner himself painted a magnificent pair of paintings on the conflagration from two different perspectives. You can easily find them through Google. Just type in Turner and Palace of Westminster fire. As the fire burnt itself out, 
there was little left of the original buildings. Only Westminster Hall, the Undercroft Chapel of St Mary and part of the cloister survived. Hundreds of years of history gone. In a blaze of British complacency and foot dragging. Fortunately, what was to come next was nothing short of magnificent. Parliament appointed Charles Barry and Augustus Peggin to design a marvel. Like a modern day Augustus and Agrippa replacing the old Rome with marble. The stunning Gothic triumph of the Palace of Westminster was planned and built. Above all, it had to flatter the egos of the men who viewed themselves as the rulers of the new Rome. And it did all that and more. Construction began. But it wasn't until 1844 that Parliament added a clock and a clock tower to the design specification. Barry immediately began to make things complicated by only inviting one clockmaker to bid for the tender. Barry deserves a lot of sympathy, though. He performed miracles to build the new Parliament in the face of political meddling, the quicksand under the foundations, cholera, problems with sewage, the massive budget overspends and strikes. The clockmaking industry was up in arms. So Sir George Airy produced a demanding specification, including a requirement that, quote, the first stroke of the hour bell should register the time correct to within one second per day, and furthermore, that it should telegraph its performance twice a day to Greenwich Observatory, where a record should be kept, end quote. There was further uproar. Clockmakers objected that this was unachievable and that bad weather would prevent it working properly. Parliament made a characteristically bad decision to help sort things out. It appointed a barrister, Edmund Beckett Dennison, as co-referee with Airy. This was a terrible choice in many, many ways. Dennison was described as unpleasant, with one writer saying, quote, Zealous but unpopular, self-accredited expert on clocks, locks, bells, buildings, as well as many branches of law. Dennison was one of those people who are almost impossible as colleagues, being perfectly convinced that they know more than anybody else, as unhappily they often do. End quote. Certainly, Dennison was making himself a wealthy lawyer, although it is hinted at in some sources that this was more due to abrasive legal attacks in court than genuine skill. His temper brought him into conflict with others on the project. Far from pouring oil on troubled water, Denson just contributed to the ongoing headaches. Don't let this mislead you into thinking that Denison was wholly inept, though. He certainly wasn't. He designed the clock itself, as well as inventing a novel gravity escapement to regulate it. In 1852, John Dent was actually commissioned to build it. The escapement was key to creating the incredible accuracy of the clock. Dennison was certainly demonstrating that he knew about clocks and published a treatise called A Rudimentary Treatise on Clocks, Watches and Bells in 1850 which went through eight editions. The clock was ready in 1854. The clock tower 
was officially known as the Clock Tower, or St. Stephen's Tower, was not ready until 1859. Side note that in 2012, it was renamed the Elizabeth Tower. Clearly, though, Denison was intelligent and talented in horology. Sadly, things would go downhill from here. Denison turned his attention to the bell. He decided that his study of clocks made him an expert in bells, too. He therefore took the original specifications for the bell and began to go to work. Barry had specified a bell of 14 tonnes, larger than anything ever made in Britain before. Denison complicated things by ignoring industry advice and experience to produce his own design for the bell. People were wary about bidding for this contract, but Denison managed to get a supplier, John Warner and Sons at Stockton-on-Tees. Sadly, the great bell they made cracked during testing. Denison and the company got into dispute over the cause. Denison was by now a QC, that's Queen's Council for listeners unfamiliar with the term, It is used to denote a senior British barrister. And he managed to secure the Whitechapel Bell Foundry under George Mears Company. Now that is a foundry name that deserves to be well known. Not only did they make Big Ben, but they also cast the Liberty Bell. Their expertise truly rang out around the world. Now, if this was a full episode, I'd be reminding you that we are only following what could be called the history of the elites. We've talked about a few architects and politicians. We haven't asked about the men who worked in the foundries and the women who almost certainly did related labour, the mid-level administrators who arranged finance and testing or organised the work. Denison didn't just order George Mears to wave a magic wand to operate the furnaces. The bell and the tower were the creation of hundreds of unknown people, dockers who unloaded material, Carters who drove it, factory hands, cooks, labourers and washerwomen, apprentices, toolmakers, planners and draftsmen. All of them had an unsung hand in the crafting of the bell. The old bell from John Warner and Sons was melted down to help provide material for the new one, offsetting some of the costs. Casting this huge new bell involved new techniques like heating the giant mould before the molten metal was poured in. It took 20 minutes to pour and 20 days to cool. Crucially, Denison himself inspected the bell before it left the factory. It was installed with great ceremony in the tower. It took 16 horses to move it the few miles from the foundry to be installed. This bell was two and a half tonnes lighter than the first. Its dimensions meant that it was too large to fit up the clock tower's shaft vertically. So Big Ben was turned on its side and winched up. It took 30 hours to get it to the Belfry in October 1858. True to form, Denison took a fateful decision. When the bell was installed, he caused to be used a hammer well above the maximum weight specified by George Mears. On the 31st of May, 1859, Big Ben was struck for the first time. Two months later, a crack appeared in the bell, on the opposite side to the hammer strike, where the sound waves attained the greatest force. 
This, of course, was a disaster for Denison. A square piece of metal was ground out of the cracked area and the bell rotated through 22 degrees. This crack is credited with giving the bell its distinctive tone. The tone you hear today is the imperfect tone. Ironically, it is distinct and unmistakable. What happened next is pretty shocking behaviour from a highly qualified lawyer. When he succeeded to his father's baronetcy in 1874, he dropped the surname Denison and styled himself Sir Edmund Beckett QC until, upon his elevation to the baronetcy in 1886, when he became Lord Grimthorpe. Whatever his public titles, he was about to show a serious and surprising character flaw. He got into dispute with the Mears Company in the foundry over the crack in the bell. The dispute went public and resulted in two libel cases against Denison. Worst of all, he was found to have befriended one of the technicians at the foundry, got him drunk, bullied him into giving false testimony that the crack in the bell had been due to poor workmanship that had been concealed by filler before the bell left the factory. It goes without saying that falsifying witness testimony is scandalous behaviour for a lawyer let alone a senior QC and a baronet. In 1860, Beckett had made statements about the causes of the failure of the Big Ben Bell, but he had to withdraw them after the first legal action by George Mears. In 1868, he was elected president of the Horological Society Institute, on condition that he should not attend dinners and was annually re-elected, though not always without opposition. In 1881, he lost a libel action brought against him by Mr Steinbeck of Mears and Steinbeck concerning the casting of the bell. The case didn't escape public notice. Even the American Architect and Building News magazine reported it in 1881. Beckett's lies had come home to roost and he had foolishly exposed himself to ridicule not just once in 1860 shortly after the cracking of the bell but 20 years later It was a deeply foolish thing to do. He died in 1905, and I'd like to quote his obituary, because I think it's quite enlightening on his character. Quote, Early on Saturday morning, the 29th of April 1905, Edmund Beckett Denison, Lord Grimthorpe, passed away quietly at a great age, in his house, Batchwood, St Albans. He was born in 1816. Of his life as a lawyer, a politician, an architect, and a conversationalist, we do not propose to speak. He was a man celebrated for his abilities, notorious as a fighter. But we cannot let his memory pass away without putting on the record the fact that he revolutionised the construction of large public clocks and incidentally produced some of the finest regulators ever made. To those who are versed in horology, the name of Denison is a household word, but it is not difficult to make any engineer understand what it was that he effected. Clocks working pendulums are more or less accurate just as they leave the pendulum more or less alone. It is of the utmost importance that the frictional resistance of the escapement should be as small as possible, that whatever its amount, it should remain constant over long periods, and that the driving power of the clock should always be the same. It is only in this way that the length of the arc described by the pendulum can be kept nearly always the same. 
and always traversed in the same period. Now, church clocks must be large because they have to move big bands. Their wheelwork is coarse and the effect of the wind on the bands is very great. Sir Edmund Beckett Denison designed the great clock made by Dent for the Houses of Parliament, which is probably the finest timekeeper ever used on a public building. It is fitted with double three-legged gravity escapement. Lord Grimthorpe was a great authority on bells, bell hanging and bell ringing. He was a good mathematician and in many respects a fine mechanic. As an author, his style was excellent. Even his rampant dogmatism was not without charm. Our readers will find it worth their while to get his treatise on clocks, watches and bells, the first edition of which appeared in Wheel's series some 50 years ago. The later editions contain much interesting additional matter. End quote. Well, at least his obituary was kind to him, even if it put the odd knife in. Still, it is worth remembering that for all his faults, the sound of Big Ben is world famous. His brilliant clock keeps amazing time, 158 years later. Even now, it is remarkably reliable, so much so that problems can be individually listed and are usually the result of blunders by workmen doing maintenance. Let's also just take a step back and consider what an amazing achievement this was. The sheer size and weight of the bell represented an enormous engineering challenge. Only the British had the industrial power and knowledge to build it. There were no forklifts or electric cranes to help, no welders or delivery trucks. To build mostly came down to human muscle and brutal determination. It shall be done is almost the battle cry of the Victorian age. Giving up risk management, quantifiable benefit planning, realistic delivery plans are all obstacles that the Victorians would have had no time for. Parliament, and thus the nation, required a giant tower with a giant clock and a giant bell. It shall be done, indeed. And today? Well, Big Ben is certainly world famous. It is the icon of London, recognisable internationally as the emblem of the city and of the nation. The Whitechapel Bell Foundry site closed in December 2016 after hundreds of years of bell making. Palace of Westminster is a disaster again. It is riddled with asbestos, suffers serious and significant flooding, leaks that cause structural damage and it is an enormous fire risk. Assessors have accepted that if the building were a private building and not a World Heritage site it would be condemned and demolished. The building can only have MPs in it because it has 24-hour-a-day fire safety teams at a cost of £49 million a year. The cost of repairs are daunting. If MPs are relocated during repairs, the bill for the exodus option has been put at £3.9 billion against £6 billion if contractors work around MPs in a 32-year rolling programme. The UK's infrastructure creaking at the seams. Austerity and Brexit put immense strains on the UK's already poorly performing economy. When Big Ben was cast and the clock tower were built, Britain was approaching her imperial and industrial height. Now the UK is much reduced. The repair planning process is already mirrored in bitter arguments. Yet out of bitter arguments and adversity rose that iconic tower the first time. Perhaps such times will result 
in something magnificent again in the future. Who knows? I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I really enjoyed learning a lot about Big Ben, and I hope to hear from you soon. Take care. Bye for now. Thank mm-hmm. you.